This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you go into the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome, guys, to episode 283 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I am absolutely honored to bring on the show two members of the UK Special Forces, Staz and Jay. So Jay was former SAS with Staz working with the SBS. And this conversation really highlights a topic that we've talked about a lot, which is transitioning out of the military, out of the first responder community. So Staz with his co-founder Louis formed Through Dark, bringing Jay on as the director and basically took all their experiences working in extreme conditions in special operations and applying it to creating clothing that can endure all levels. So an incredible conversation, as I'm sure you can imagine, their deployment stories are fascinating, and also the entrepreneurial side is extremely fascinating, as well as the mindset transitioning from one to the other. Before we get to that interview, like I always say, please take a moment, go to whichever app you're listening to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and then most importantly, leave a five-star rating. The more five-star ratings we get, the more visible we are, the more people discover a podcast like this and get to learn from almost 300 guests that we've had on so far. And then also take your social media, word of mouth, email, Use it as training. This is a free, free library for every single ear hole on this crazy planet that we live in and share these episodes. The more people we get this to, the more people are going to be able to enrich their lives. So with that being said, I introduce to you Staz and Jay. Enjoy. Well, I want to say thank you for coming on the podcast. Where are we finding you guys on planet Earth today? So we're in uh, in Poole in Dorset, 
Uh, yeah, so our HQ uh, pool uh, is, is down here. I mean, um, historically, the uh, the SBS, the Special Boat Service Camp, is based down in uh, down in, in Pool in Hamworthy, uh, which is on the south coast of England. Uh, and fortunately, what kind of when myself and Louis uh, both left the service uh, and set up through dark, um, the office uh, that we sort of work out of now, where we currently are at this moment, is uh, is also in Pool as well. So it's quite handy, about roughly three miles away from the camp. Brilliant. Well, I'd love to just get a very brief kind of uh, story from each of you, how you found yourself in the SBS, like your, your journey into the military. Yeah, well, I'll start first on myself, Staz. Born, uh, 84, um, uh, up in Bolton, Lancashire. All my family are kind of from up, up the north of, uh, of England, um, in Lancashire area. Um, around about, I think I was about nine or ten years old, uh, my parents um, split up. Uh, I moved to Nottingham, then with my brother. The rest of my kind of family stayed up in Wigan. Um, from that time and moving on from nine to sort of ages up towards 11, um, you know, I was kind of finding my feet, moving into a new area, new school, all this good stuff. Uh, and I kind of had my first, uh, kind of slap in the face really, uh, through life. Uh, my mother passed away quite suddenly really. Um, and I was around about, yeah, the age of 11, my brother was 13. Now we were kind of left in Nottingham with a uh, stepfather, which we kind of really didn't, um, didn't like, didn't get on with. Things were quite uh, strained at that time in terms of the relationship. So from there, my grandparents, my mother's parents moved down uh, from Wigan to Nottingham and kind of uh, me and my brother then moved in uh, and they kind of raised us from there moving forward. Um, again, carried on with school. At uh, that moment in time, I was kind of just transitioning into sort of secondary school, um, cracked on through school, no, no real major issues, um, not very academic, um, you know, uh, certainly sort of swayed towards the, the more physical and sport aspect side of things as generally our guys tend to do. Um, playing quite high level football, playing and uh, representing like the, the county, um, play, uh, affiliated to uh, professional sports clubs as well, football clubs. Uh, and then I was kind of representing the British colleges, I played for England schoolboys. Uh, and then I was linked to kind of Premier League teams as well. Uh, and right at the uh, right at the time when I kind of should have been concentrating, I was off with my friends back in Nottingham uh, and, and kind of riding uh, motocross as well and racing around and, and, and kind of did myself a mischief if you will uh, on my knee that required me to go for kind of a knee surgery um right right at the sort of pinnacle time of, of, of becoming or well, hopefully you know looking towards getting a professional contract with the team which everything was kind of looking great for me so that was a bit of a slap in the face as well at that, at that stage uh and then from there i kind of uh completed college moved into a gym worked into it worked within a, a local kind of gym for a while um, and then I was kind of like just, you know, thinking, you know, what, what am I doing? You know, where do I want to be? You know, I kind of felt like I had more to give. Uh, I always kind of wanted more challenge and I had this kind of little fire burning in my belly. So, I, I you know, probably a, a few issues as well and a bit of anger looking back um, from one of some kind of the cards that I'd been dealt. So I thought, well, you know, I need to get away from the area as well. So let, let's look at military options, you know, which is for me was quite – um, unfamiliar territory really because there was no external pressure in terms of um, family or friends or anybody else that had, had a history of, of being within the, the military um, so I just kind of went over to the uh, the Armed Forces Career Centre in Nottingham uh, and asked them kind of you know um, you know being kind of young and, uh, and naive really just asking them which the hardest course was and it you know at the time I think it was a Royal Marine uh, guy that was in the office uh, kind of pulled me to one side and you know obviously um, sang the praises for the Royal Marines and then obviously the Paris as well 
Um, from there, it was a case of picking one of those. You know, um, I picked the Royal Marines, uh, and then I just kind of went through that process there. And it kind of gave me a, a bit of focus and, and something to kind of look towards and, and something to aim towards that I, I'd not had for a long time since kind of finishing the football uh, and not being around sort of um, uh, people in that environment. I kind of thrived on that environment as well. So from there, went through that process, passed the medicals, and then off I went to sort of Royal Marines kind of training. Um, and then, yeah, from there, straight through, um, passed Royal Marines training uh, first time as an original in my troop. I was awarded the King's Badge um, for being the kind of best recruit. Uh, and then got the physical training medal as well. So I kind of found my calling in terms of, you know, I, I kind of, um, I'd taken to it quite well. Um, from there, kind of joined um, the, the Royal Marines, 40 Commando, uh, straight out on, on, on operations, uh, July 06 on Operic 6. Came back, joined Fleet Protection Group um, up in Scotland. Then I completed my Royal Marines sniper course. Again, just trying to always kind of um, look for more things to do, more challenges. And completing the uh, Royal Marines sniper course, arguably probably one of the hardest courses you could do within the, within the British military. I then sort of uh, was loaded onto a, UK, a joint UK Special Forces selection uh, in 2000 and, 2008, really. Yeah, brilliant. Now, just a quick question. Um, without getting too personal, you mentioned about you know your mother passing away. I'm sorry to hear that, and then you know being left with your stepdad. Do you think there was an element of being feeling kind of vulnerable when you were in that position, and then that feeding you into a, a career where you were a protector? Then, uh, maybe you know, uh, absolutely. I think there's. I think generally, from what I hear and read and speak to everybody from our kind of our kind of circles, I think there is. There's usually a catalyst, um, you know, something happens, it's usually a little bit of trauma or adversity or or something that, you know, people always say, why do you always kind of push yourself, why are you always, you know, beasting yourself all the time, whether it's, you know, from a fitness point of view or whatever, or career-wise, you know, I think it's, there is always something, an element that kind of, and everybody's different, it affects people differently, but I kind of used it as a, you know, a, a, my, probably my coping mechanism was to just go out and, you know, and try and use that kind of anger. I sort of felt like I'd been dealt a, a bad card there. But, you know, it's life. You know, shit happens, you know. And I think it's, you know, the older you get uh, and the more that you understand, you know, that this is a part of life and, and it, you don't always get the roll of the dice, then I think it's it, it does kind of shape who you are. It kind of forms your your belief, you, you know, your uh, mental sort of attitude. And, uh, and yeah, I think that's a possibly yeah quite a, a big factor really yeah i mean that's something that i've seen that a lot of people some people on here have been you know had really bad childhood trauma like you know abuse and all kinds of stuff and and that was seems to be a common denominator with that with the military and then with the first responder professions yeah right well then jay same question for you your entry in um yeah it's probably quite a similar story um i'm from the north of england originally uh, it's fair to say we're both from probably working class backgrounds um, and then it was probably you know during school that I realized that school didn't really satisfy me or I had no interest in in the subjects that were being taught which is kind of weird now because at the age of 36 I've probably got more interest in history and geography and yeah. all those subjects than I did that I did when I was you know 13 14 um, but kind of, you know, didn't enjoy the, the being indoors aspect of school. Um, and then left school, went to college. Again, enjoyed playing sport in college, but didn't enjoy the, the kind of indoors, staring at a computer screen kind of aspect of it. Um, 
and yeah, it was kind of similar to Stars. I was like looking at options in the military and, you know, the kind of aspects of the military as in you go away, you're part of a team or a brotherhood, a family, essentially. Um, you know, you go away, you do all this so-called exciting stuff. You, you travel, travel the world uh, and you do that uh, with your family. That kind of, that kind of appealed to me. So at the time I went to join um, the Royal Marines and um, I walked in the careers office and the guy behind the counter said that I had to do 15 pull-ups um, I was 16 years old and I couldn't do 15 pull-ups. I could probably do about two. So um, at the time, I walked across the road and, and, and walked into the Army Careers Office and asked him what the hardest, um, what was the hardest thing to do, or, or what was the the best infantry unit in, in the Army at that time. And it was the Parachute Regiment. So I applied for the Parachute Regiment. Had no idea what I was getting myself into. You know, I was I was into fitness, but not not like massively into fitness uh, so much as what I am now. Like I'd go out running, maybe hit the gym once or twice a week, probably drank too much alcohol, um, all that kind of stuff that a 17-year-old that a boy does. Um, but yeah, I went up to to do the, the parachute regiment course and P company and, and passed that and enjoyed it and enjoyed being part of a team and, you know, that 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 family ship that you that you get when you all go through some sort of stressful scenario or situation. Um, and then I went to three parrot. Um, it was a year and a half later we deployed out to Afghanistan, 2006, obviously involved in a lot of heavy fighting. It was the first time that the British military had gone into, or the British military bar the special forces that had gone into Afghanistan, especially uh, exposed to so much fighting that, that, that we were exposed to. Um, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed, you know, the so-called adrenaline rush, or you know, being part of that, um, being part of that team and, and going out on operations. Um, and it was, yeah, it really appealed to me. Um, you know, the simplicity of war. Uh, came back from that, and then we deployed two years later in two thousand and eight. Um, similar kind of operation, but we, we we weren't involved in as much combat as we were in two thousand and six. And towards the end of it, I was kind of thinking, you know, I kind of I wanted to progress further. I wanted to, you know, go on more operations, see more things, um, you know, be involved in better training, get better kit, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and at the time, we, we kept seeing, it was the SBS at the time, flying out on the, the CH-47 lifters out on operations in Kandahar. And now uh, we always used to talk about it in our in our close community of friends in 3Power and, you know, we you know, we just look up at the lifters and think, "Fuck me, that'd be that'd be good to do that." Um, so I came back from that tour in 2008, put myself on selection in 2000. Get that right? So came back from tour 2008, selection 2009, badged, yeah, badged 2009, um, and then yeah, never looked back on that 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 decision. Brilliant. Now, for you know, a lot of the people listening to this, they you know not from the UK. Can you just explain either of you the difference between kind of what the SAS is and what the SBS is, and, and the difference between the two? Yeah, sure. So, so I I was SAS, Stas was SBS. I think predominantly or historically, the SAS would would uh, be kind of predominantly land and air operations. So we'd infill via via air or para um we would cover the whole remit just like the sbs cover para but it would predominantly be kind of 
war fighting done on land, whereas it's fair to say the SBS historically would have been maritime uh, war fighting. So oil rigs, uh, boats, um, all that kind of stuff. But I think it's fair to say now that the role of the SAS and the SBS is pretty much the same, considering if you look at you know, the fighting that goes on in the world today, it's all done you know, in cities or in, in, in open like countryside in, in, in certain countries. So the, the speciality roles stay the same, but the job description... I think the dynamics has changed as well. Jay's exactly right there, you know, and I think in terms of uh, we have to look at where, you know, the recent wars have been fought and, and, and the majority of them have been on, on land and, and we both provide a, a kind of specialist um, niche... Um, I think function really is, is, the, is the right word, but I think you know working together and uh, to, towards that sort of common goal. I think has been, uh, I think since, probably since the Falklands that people sort of saw you know working in use and together, Marines, Paras, SAS, SBS working alongside each other. And I think moving forward now into Afghanistan, particularly, I think each unit, specific unit, was given um, a kind of an area to work within or around the globe, and they kind of concentrate and dial in on that area. Whether it's you know, uh, traditionally it was SAS were working in Iraq and ourselves the SBS. Were you know were, were predominantly working in Afghanistan from about 2000 onwards, uh, and, and there's been a bit of crossover there as well throughout the times. Um, but yeah, I think um, in terms of skill set, uh, and again moving back slightly, um, the selection process was completely separate as well. So you'd kind of um, you couldn't volunteer yourself. You know, you was kind of um, put forward for selection through the Royal Marines, which was then the, the natural feeder into the SBS, uh, and then you know, same for the, for the Paris feeding into the SAS. And then I think it was in around 2005, I think, yeah, I want to say, yeah. when uh, they kind of um, uh, united the clans, if you will, and they it all came under one kind of uh, umbrella, uh, United Kingdom Special Forces, UKSF, and that kind of covered the SAS, the SBS, you know, and a few other units as well, the SRR, and, uh, and everybody just to kind of uh, pull everything together. And then it moved into joint, you know, Special Forces selection. So you were kind of... Uh, mixed uh, directing staff on the on the course and uh, mixed students as well from from all backgrounds all kind of uh, uh, and then at the end well before that you'd kind of uh, place down your preference in terms of which unit you would like to go to and again just I think historically and generally people that were from a Royal Marines background would kind would tend to sort of favour towards the SPS and anybody sort of army infantry would tend to sort of favour towards the SAS but you know uh, you, you, you can absolutely go for whichever whichever one uh, you preferred really and lads choose different options usually depending upon you know if they know people from, from the, each regiment or geographically you know Hereford uh, the SAS are based up in Hereford kind of um, uh, up towards Wales from uh, um, Midlands there so Again, that would be a factor on, on people as to which unit they would uh, they would go for. Right. Well, that, another question for both of you. So, obviously, SAS SBS is you know the the pinnacle for you know a soldier or a member of the military, and therefore, like you said, you had a selection. What was it physically and mentally that got you guys through where so many others weren't able to? Too stupid to pull myself off, probably. <laughs> yeah, I think it's probably that though. It's it is really, yeah. I think you know, and obviously, you know, not stupid, but I mean, I think you, I think your why has to be has to be you know bigger than any reason for you to pull yourself off. You know, being on these courses, it's 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 you know, it's physically very demanding. Clearly, you know. Um, but I think obviously everyone keeps going. I think everyone—it's not a surprise anymore, a secret anymore. But everybody understands that it is a more of a mental game uh, than it is physical. Yeah, clearly you have to be 
physically very strong and fit and robust is probably one of the main things. But I think, you know, having that mental attitude to kind of not give in that kind of stubborn attitude of, and for me, my reason for being there, you know, I was kind of, I had nothing else to go back to my, for me to pull off that course, it was kind of a, why am I pulling myself off this course? I've got, you know, I didn't have anything nicer to go back to. And, and I think that's a, a real big determining factor for, for a lot of guys. I think, you know, I, I, you know, for me, it would have been returning back to Scotland, back up to the free protection group. And one was the fear of failure for me is massive. You know, I, I couldn't bring myself to pick up that phone and ring, you know, my family or my loved ones and say, do you know what? You know, it's too hard. I've pulled myself off. You know, I could always always suck up a bit of hurt you know in the short term for the long-term gain you know I knew that and you know I, I, I did selection a little bit um, I think when I was about 21 years old so you know still wet behind the ears still young still inexperienced but I'd experienced a little bit of stuff you know a few years within the Royal Marines but I was just stubborn I think what about you Jay? Yeah no, uh, very similar and I say uh, too stupid to pull myself off but I guess it, it goes down to similar to what Staz says it's like you know, I knew that if I did pull myself off, what I'd be going back to. And I knew that I, I wanted to be in the SAS. And it's, you know, the selection's a course. And I've never been on a course in the military or, or anywhere in my life where I've just all of a sudden pulled myself off for no reason. So it would have, ta- it would have taken a massive intervention to pull me off that course, whether it's injury. injury or failure. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's, I've kind of took that to everything in life regardless of what I've done, it's that same mindset. It's looking, it's, you know, understanding where you've come from and not wanting to go back and understanding where you can go and moving forward to that. Right. So what I'd love to explore as well is what we have here in, in, in the U S and I'm I'm sure it probably mirrors the UK as well. Um, And I've heard this from numerous members of special forces here. You've got the green berets, the Navy seals, all the associated uh, branches, that what separated them aside from obviously selection and, you know, capability of the men and women that are in them is the environment they're in. So now all of a sudden they're getting the best equipment. They're getting, you know, trainers and nutritionists and, and, you know, all these other areas to make them thrive, you know, as, a, as a, a, an operator. What was the difference that you saw between, you know, regular, say, Paris and Royal Marines and then that top tier? Yes, I think um, it's probably very similar to you guys. And I think historically we've kind of leaned towards, you know, our brothers across the pond there. Um, I think it's fair to say that Delta would be aligned to the SAS and and SEAL Team 6, you know, and SEALs would be aligned to kind of the SBS. And we do a lot of cross-pollination and and training as well, um, kind of um, helping each other out. Um, But, you know, know, those guys have always seemed to be slightly um, one step ahead in terms of kit and equipment. It's probably the main thing. But we're generally quite similar similar people similar individuals quite kind of um, same personality sort of characteristics and such and skill set wise generally quite similar as well I'd say yes I think you know that was kind of the massive difference and probably one of the reasons for, for going on selection was the difference in <laughs> yeah, kit yeah. Uh, budget budgets are, budgets are massive things so you know the budget to be able to train abroad to be able to, to go jumping in the states or in, in hot countries uh, to kind of tick all them boxes and make sure that you're operationally uh, deployable, um, and then then the kit as well. It's you know when we were in in Afghanistan in 2006 with three para, we were like walking around with the old Northern Ireland body armor on with a small plate, um, and a couple of guys actually got shot in the small plate. And for people who don't know what the small plate is, it's probably it's a uh, it's not multi shot or it's not multi hit. It's a plate of around I'd say 20 centimeters in height and about 
10, 15 centimetres mm. in width. Just covering the, you know, the, the, the heart. Yeah, there, wasn't it? yeah, it was, I mean, you, you probably remember it from your days in the army. Uh, but um, yeah, so, you know, to see kind of what the special forces, the kit and equipment that they went out with, but also, you know, the kind of assets and stuff and, 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 and intelligence that got thrown at the operations uh, once we deployed out to theater was, was also, you know, a plus point on that. And, you know, if we were deploying to any, any, any of the like super dangerous places out in Afghanistan, you'd know that you'd have the top cover in the sky that would support you in that operation uh, if, if, if needed and if the shit hit the fan. Yeah, yeah. See, I always find that interesting because, in uh, just to say, I, I was never in the military. I, I've been a firefighter my whole career. Um, but uh, what I find interesting and, and sad in a way, you know, with our mutual friend Dave is obviously, you know, working as a as an armed police officer over there in the UK, and and over here as a firefighter, our professions are not viewed like that. They don't have the best gear. They don't have, you know ample training a lot of times staffing is is threatened you know especially you know you see the firefighters on on strike all the time over there um and i wish that the general public would understand that those men and women of those you know services need to have the same level of training need to have the, the best equipment so that they can facilitate excuse me facilitate saving lives you know on our home ground as well i agree i i completely agree with you and i think I think there's a fine balance of not giving too much, you know, budgets have to be met and there's a fine balance of not giving too much kit and spending too much money, but giving the, enough kit to be able to carry out that job. And if you think back to, you know, when, when I said about Afghanistan 2006, I've always been, you know, a big supporter of to be a professional or, you know, to be a professional soldier, you have to do the best job that you can do with the minimal kit or the kit that you're given. And yes, there's that fine balance of not having the right kit and equipment uh, that you can't do the job, but having enough equipment that you can still go out and do the job effectively. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree. I and mean, that's the thing you can definitely waste a budget, but yeah, there, there are, uh, you know, elements where if you don't have in, enough of the right quit, it's completely uh, detrimental to the job they're trying to do. Yeah, of course. It's like you don't want to go out into Afghanistan with one magazine of ammunition. No, and a small plate. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Well, then um, another thing I want to make sure we touch on as well is re realism in training. So, again, I've seen with budget cuts, with, you know, maybe some poor leadership, how in the fire services, when I understand that, yeah, they'll just go through the motions. They'll start checking boxes as far as training. And obviously, that's very that's very foreign to most people in special forces. So what, what is the, uh, the importance put on realism of training in, in your, uh, professions? I think there's a huge emphasis on, on, on realism in training. I think again, hopping back to sort of the last point as well and budgets and capability, uh, being afforded that luxury in, in essence to go out and train with partner forces in certain areas, uh, with the right people, whether it's everything all right across the board from medical to firearms, weapons and tactics, everything, you know, you know, we, we have, uh, unfortunately in this day and age now everything's fucking health and safety driven, isn't it? And, and the world's going fucking mad, you know, in my humble opinion. Um, I agree. <laughs> you know, it, I agree. It's, 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 it really is. It's crazy. And I think it, it is at the detriment to, to, you know, to the guys that are ultimately trying to provide a function, you know, 
Um, and we, we've all kind of felt this pinch or this squeeze at some form or other. And it's even creeping into the into the special forces um, world as well now. You know, I mean, it's like, fuck, let's get it right. You know, it's a dangerous job. You know, it requires kind of lads sailing close to the wind effectively and living life on the edge, you know. And you have to absolutely keep pushing that boundary, keep pushing the ball, you know, keep pushing it forward to keep, you know, keep the guys, you know, uh, leveled up because, you know, ultimately, when, you know, when you're training for something as specialist or as niche as, as what we, as what we are, um, you know, there's absolutely no room to manoeuvre, especially when you are, you're out on operations. You know, you have to you have to try and like emulate and simulate that same kind of um, that that same kind of environment and training for the lads. And it's very difficult sometimes because you know we're affording the luxury of of of, of going to war within the you know, the regular units, the military, uh, and now Afghanistan and other areas are closed down. You know, I, I say luxury, I, I mean that in the, in the right sort of context. It's not a luxury. What I'm saying is that the guys would come, you know, potentially now are joining special forces and they haven't even deployed on an operational tour with their sort of, um, with their uh, parent unit. So the Murrell Marines or the Paras, everything's closed down. They're then joining, you know, uh, special forces. And the first sort of operations they're going on are within a tier one unit. So, you know, how do you get people ready for war? Jesus, you know, I think me and Jay spoke about this at length. And it's kind of, you know, until you're actually there, you don't know how people are going to react, you know, specifically, whether it's trauma, whether it's, you know, direct fighting, whether people are going to freeze, what's going to happen. Because it's all well and good training to a certain level with simonition. But at the end of the day, you know uh, you know, you, you're not going to fucking die. You know, you might, you might get injured. You know, you might break a leg or whatever. You know, but it's it's not the same. It's not the same sort of focus that your brain needs to be at. The same sort of level and intensity that you need to work and operate at. Um, so I think it's you know it's super super important. And I think it's it's us kind of uh, using our imagination as instructors. I think is is, is a big one as well. And kind of uh, leaning on other guys' operational experience and skill sets as well within that training environment, within that budget, within the constraints of health and safety. So it's a difficult one. It really, really is a difficult one. And I think the best way that you can get experience uh, or training is on the fucking job, you know, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well. And yeah, you're thrown in at the deep end, but, you know, that's the way it is. That's where you learn your biggest lessons. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. Well, I've got one more question, but then we'll start talking about transitioning out and obviously get to through dark. Um, one thing I like to ask anyone who comes on who's in the military, because at home, when you're not a member of the military, you, you get sold whatever you see on your TV. And at least in the UK, we had the BBC, which I think is a pretty uh, middle of the road news network. And you've probably seen the ones here. They're horrendous. Um, so I asked the people, regardless of the politics, you know, I grew up when the Falklands War happened, you know, that was that was the biggest kind of conflict when I was a little boy. Um, but regardless of what initially sent, there's usually a moment where these men and women go, fuck me, these are horrible people, something that we're chasing. Did Was there any moment in your career where once you boots on the ground, realized that whatever the the political undertone that put you where you were, that you, with your own eyes, saw something horrific, and you're like, "All right, these these people need to die." Um, not so, personally for me. Yes and no. Um, I think, you know, you deploy in operations, and you, you know you have a specific task to carry out on, the, on those operations, and that is to, you know. So whatever it is, it's you know if, if you're in the, if you're in the Green Army, yeah. it's yeah, it's 
peacekeeping or whatever it was called, even though you're getting in firefights, if it's in the military, it's to go and you know carry out uh, HVT, HVT targets, all that kind of stuff. Stabilization, you know, for everybody. Yeah. And um, yeah, I guess, I guess initially you go there, professional soldier, go out, do your job. Um, and yeah, you know, they're an enemy. It's, it's, a, it's a job that you've got to carry out um, and, and carry out effectively. Uh, yeah, I think it's a difficult one, James, to answer without tying yourself up too much in terms of, you know, internally and externally and, and the, that thought process that you go through. I think the difference, you know, um, between a lot of our guys, and I don't want to say this and sound detrimental towards anybody else, uh, but, you know, we are, you know, we're a thinking man soldier. We are, you know, we don't just go blindly running into war and, you know, and, and charge, follow me, let's go. We're not about that. You know, we're always thinking about why we're there. What are we doing? What function? You know, all this sort of stuff going, harping back to mission success. What is mission success? What is it? How does this lead into all everything else and the geopolicies, everything that's layered up? It's not just a quick sort of factor of let's go on and hey listen look at these are these are fucking bad guys you know look at this bad guy over here he's trying to shoot at me you know, fucking right he is yeah i'm trying to shoot at him you know it's, that's the realities the stark realities of war i never really had a, a feeling of us against them i always in some ways respected everybody that that, that you know that you know at the end of the day we, we you know we're in we're in their back garden you know so there's always a level of respect there um and i don't think you know that yeah of course there's always cowardly acts there's cowardly acts on on, on all you know fronts you know you know are we're cowardly in some respect for using you know um you know all the technology that's are that are at our disposal you know and you could argue that that's that's the only way that these guys can fight a, a, you know a bigger beast like us you know is to use sort of guerrilla tactics guerrilla warfare use you know improvised explosive devices you know uh, you know, let's be honest about this here. You know, would I do the same in their position? Yeah, absolutely, you would. You know, because you know you're protecting your fatherland, you're protecting your family, you're protecting you know your your brothers next to you. You know, it's that th this is what it's all about. You know, there's there's times and there's examples. We could give you numerous examples of you know things that you know from the outside looking back, uh, looking in with no context added from people sat in their armchair or in their car listening or think that's fucking, that's monstrous. I can't believe it's barbaric. How have they done this? Why are they doing this? But they have to have context layered over the top of that. You know, there's people using children as, as you know, over there as, as, you know, knowing that you wouldn't shoot them because they're holding children, you know, and, and people will go, wow, fuck, that's horrendous, you know, but that, that, you know, desperate people, you know, will do desperate things, you know, in desperate situations. Um, so I think we absolutely have to look at that with context, you know, and, and I always do, you know, I'm, I'm not, not too, you know, I'm not too close minded to, you know, to, to think, geez, these guys were all barbaric. Look at them. Yeah. You know, they are behind, you know, in some respects and, you know, but, um, it's kind of, you know, let, listen, you know, let's be all open to the idea that we're, we are fed, you know, certain information through certain media platforms and it's up to us how we think and digest information. I think that's what kind of separates, you know, you know, the thinkers from people that are, are potentially just kind of looking for an option or, or an excuse um, to provide a function. Uh, it's probably, you know, um, in the short sort of scale, yeah. Yeah, I com completely agree with, with what Staz is saying about that level of respect for the enemy. And, you know, I think you've got to have that level of respect. And, and like Staz, Staz was saying, it's like if you were in their shoes, you'd be doing exactly the same. I think once you lose respect for the enemy and start seeing them as some sort of piece of meat or some monstrous kind of barbaric person, then as soon as you lose that respect, it's like, you know, that's where you start making mistakes and people will die on your side.
and it's not yeah it's not always about taking lives and 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 you know there's a lot of bravado bullshit that knocks around with people that beat their chests and mm. you know i'm doing this for fucking for the yeah. flag i'm doing it for the country i'm doing it you know and yeah we are we'll protect our own and, and i'm fucking you know i'm proud of where i'm from you know i'm proud to be british you know and and everything that goes with that i absolutely am uh, but I think is, you know, it's far too easy to sometimes jump on a bandwagon and, and kind of create this kind of mystery that, you know, we're fighting, we're fighting the demons, the devil over there. It, you know, it, it, it ultimately usually isn't isn't the case. You know, it's uh, it's people just, kind of, you know, they've never seen or, or heard of anything of us before and just kind of protecting their, you know, uh, their interests as well. Yeah, well, I really appreciate the perspective I do. And I agree with you. And there's two things that I always hear from people. One is is usually, you know, um, some sort of, like you said, some sort of horrendous thing they witness, whether it's pushing, you know, gay men off a roof or throwing acid on women or whatever. But then the other side is how striking it is that the people in whatever country they're fighting in are exactly the same as the families in the UK, as the families in America, where most of them are there trying to, you know, feed their kids. The kids are knocking a soccer ball around, football around, you know, and so the, the normality of most of the country as well. And that, that kind of paradox between the two. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, don't get me wrong, you know, there's, 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 there's ideologies and there's fundamentally, you know, there's all this kind of stuff that I wholeheartedly do not agree with, you know, and I think is is, is completely archaic and, and, and barbaric in that respect in terms of what they do, you know, to people that, uh, you know, that they kind of impose their own Sharia law onto, et cetera, et cetera, you know, but I don't really want to go into that if I'm honest, you know, it, it is what it is. That's, you know, how, you know, you could look at this objectively and go look fuck you know these guys have been raised uh, and fed this you know since they were born you know yeah. you could argue the fact that you know um they know no different you know yeah, so um, it's like what's to, what's to say that if you were in their shoes you wouldn't be in their situation chucking people you know chucking gays off i think they genuinely believe that's the right thing to do yeah. you know they do um you know it's just that i think yeah i think it, it shows a, a lack of intelligence to think otherwise yeah no and i agree and that's the thing i mean you you, you see i mean the the programming uh, go back in our country the people stabbing each other over a football team i mean <laughs> that's insanity too there's, there's, a, there's a reason the british empire is the british empire and it's not because <laughs> of uh long debates in houses of parliament and stuff it's a lot of bloodshed yes absolutely all right well then so moving on uh obviously we're going to talk about through dark Lead me through the transition or the, the, the path between you ultimately, you know, want to transition out of the military and then how um, the, the vision of this company came about as well. Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, this is a super condensed version, just you're purely pressed for time here. But I think, you know, I had a fantastic, fantastic career within the military. Um, uh, I, you know, super thankful of my time within the military. It, it, it kind of shaped who I am now as an individual, you know, um, and trying to condense sort of 13, 14 years military service down is it, difficult. But I think the, my last 10 years were spent, you know, within the special boat service. And within that 10 years, you know, it, everything from, from war fighting to brotherhood to friends, you know, and family and to training courses, you know, it, it, it's absolutely like, set me up for success in terms of moving forward mentally and, and, and physically, you know, uh, and I think it's kind of, um, for me uh, personally, you know, when we joined the UK military, you, you kind of um, sign a 22 year open engagement contract. Uh, what that means, you know, there's a couple of things attached to that, but in essence, when you want to leave the military, you hand your notice in, you give a year's notice, 
uh, moving forward. And from there, they kind of set you up to leave uh, the military and then within uh, moving into sort of uh, training courses to then uh, kind of moving and transitioning into the outside sort of civilian world. Um, I made that decision at my half kind of halfway point at my half pension point. You know, and for me, it was kind of like, have I got another 10 years in here? And and the job itself, you know, is a, an amazing, amazing job. You know, it's, it is a dream job. It really is. But it's a super selfish job as well, you know, and it takes its, it, it, its strain and its toll on families, on uh, relationships. You know, uh, I was married. It kind of um, uh, it created a massive tension and, and a divide within my first sort of uh, marriage, you know, and it's, it is, you know, it, it is a selfish job, you know, and you're kind of on the train, you're moving, you kind of don't see what damage or effect it's having for other people that are surrounded, you know, uh, back here. So I think um, at that point, it was a case of, right, you know, I'm ready to leave. I, I think I generally, I ticked most of the box, pretty much all the boxes I wanted to tick within special forces. You know, I left as a sergeant, as a senior, I'd done all these courses, you know, I'd like to think quite, quite well respected, you know, and, and, and I was kind of, I was ready to leave and turn the page and, and, and kind of move forward and, 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 uh, yeah, and, and get a new challenge, if you will. I didn't see myself doing another 10 years within the military, uh, you know, I kind of projected looking forward at people in and around my peer groups. I just, I just didn't see myself doing that. Right. And then and Jay, same question. Uh, yes, pretty much similar to be honest. And, and me and stars, uh, we left or we joined the, the military, similar ages, mm-hmm. uh, similar did similar thing. times in the Marines and the paras. And we did similar times in, in the special forces. And I think it's probably, you know, it's probably similar reasons to why we, why we got out, um, I was quite fortunate during my SF career to, to go over to Germany and train to be a mountain guide, um, a, a military mountain guide. And I guess it was during that time I kind of looked around and I spent a lot of time in the mountains. And I would say that it, it kind of changed my, my view on what was important to me. Um, and coming back from that, you know, going back into into the not so much the rigmarole, but kind of the, the routine of, of the military SF world, um, yeah, it, it kind of planted some ideas in my head of, of what I wanted to, to do in my life and climb more mountains and, and kind of, you know, be able to work with people that I want to work with and, and be, be more in control of my life as opposed to the military being in control of my life. And, um, and, yeah. and like Stas said, you know, very, had a, an extremely fortunate, uh, career, which I'm, you know, really grateful for, uh, did everything I wanted to do, uh, ticked all those boxes. And I guess, the next transition for me in, in the military, in my military career would have been, you know, it would have been a, a team leader, which, you know, I wanted to do, but then post that you kind of looking around for jobs and a, lo- a lot of those jobs, you sat behind a desk tapping away at a keyboard and that was not something I wanted to do. So I kind of looked at my age, I was 35 at the time and kind of looked around at, you know, in my head, almost looked at how I wanted to see my life for the next, you know, until I die um and, and be in control of that life and i guess staying in the military or the special forces wouldn't have given me that that freedom brilliant so then what about the inception of through dark i know as you said you did a lot of mountaineering and and so i'm sure the the awareness of good equipment versus shitty equipment was probably pretty glaring yeah 
I think it's um, obviously it's probably uh, a good point to mention Louis as well. Louis, uh, one of the other co-founders of Through Dark. Louis, uh, me and him have been kind of best friends for the, well, the best part of 15 years. Both served together in the Royal Marines, the same units. Selection, very similar time. Both in the special uh, special boat service together as well. Um, and again, sort of similar times in the career, sort of packed. Louis, unfortunately, can't make it here today. He's over in Italy pulling up fabrics. Um, sends his regards. But um, I think for us, Louis was kind of, you know, we're all teetering on this point and this uh, the, on, on this edge there. Like Jay said, he had his reasons. I had my reasons. And it was kind of right. OK, let, let's 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 look in look at this in more detail as we do plan this and prepare to leave, you know, speak to people that are kind of in that position. And Louis kind of sort of uh, his hand was forced. He had to leave. Um, he was medically discharged. Um, so, you know, he was leaving uh, and me being a, you know, a good friend sort of uh, thought he couldn't survive on, 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 on the outside world without me. So I said, look, you know, I'm ready to leave as well. Let's let's think about this. Let's, you know, what do we want to do? Let, let's move into something some, something different. You know, I think the natural transition for people like us with our skill sets is, you know, private security. You know, looking after people uh, and deploying on, on on private contracts and stuff. And I kind of just, you know, we've done a bit of that. You know, just to kind of lie in our pockets and to, to stay afloat. I think as you have to, because it's, it's just an easy sort of um, uh, skill set transition wise for us. Um, but ultimately, that's not what I wanted to do long term. And with the integration of the SAS and the SBS, you kind of uh, work alongside each other operationally and you also train with each other as well. So at the time, we were doing a joint uh, UK counterterrorism uh, exercise. Uh, and um, fortunately, my squadron was kind of paired with Jay's squadron. You know, I've been friends with Jay and known of Jay for quite a while. And it was around. It was on this sort of uh, on this course. We kind of got talking. I was like, "Look, Jay, you know, um, you know, we've always been kind of quite aligned and quite similar sort of personalities, and always got on really well." And it was a case of, "Look, you know, me and Louis are looking at sort of exit stage left there. We're, we're, we're kind of we're looking at leaving. Um, we'd love to have you on board. We've got an idea. Um, is this something of interest to you?" And I think, yeah, um, uh, from there it's kind of that seed. Uh, Jay already had his own seed sort of planted. I'll speak for him, but that maybe that just kind of of, uh, helped maybe that to, to sort of uh, add a little bit of more weight to that yeah definitely it was it was, it was definitely you know a, a good opportunity for me at that time to to join the through dark team um it, it obviously wasn't through dark at that point it was it was an inception but then grew into through dark yeah so i think the actual inception of through dark was my you know myself and louis uh jumping out at, uh, in america and blythe um doing kind of um you know parachute training out there and we were kind of jumping, jumping, looking, you know, like you said, going back to your original point about kit and equipment, you know, we are afforded the best kit and equipment uh, in the world, but, you know, we'd always be super critical, you know, we'd always be pulling and playing and a lot of the times guys are bastardizing, for want of a better word, uh, their own kit and, and kind of making it better or, you know, or, or trying to making it fit for purpose. A lot of the stuff off the shelf stuff especially was kind of, you know, not made specifically for our, our, our job roles or for, for the guys specifically on the ground. So, at that stage, we were jumping out. A bit of kit was failing, and bits and pieces, and, and and basic stuff really, like pocket placement, zips, all this sort of stuff. We were kind of looking at in in a bit more detail. And you know, at this point, it was kind of well, you know, could we? Do we think we could make kit or equipment and or equipment better and more fit for purpose for the operators and in general for for, for other people as well? So from there, we kind of started looking at it in more detail. Flew back home, uh, and we started working out of my front room of all things. Um, uh, and then sort of set this up, started looking into stuff, into business, into trademarks, and then speaking to Jay for, and, and obviously kind of now leaning on Jay's background as well heavily in terms of, of mountaineering. 
um, kind of if he had any ideas and thoughts, which which he did. Uh, and then from there, you know, you just I think you just go down that process down down that rabbit hole. I think of of business and surrounded ourselves with good people. Uh, fortunately, around about this time, we were speaking to a personal friend of ours, a local uh, businessman called Steve. Um, you know, a successful businessman. Uh, I think he, he he heard me and Louis and Jay talking as all good forms. Uh, all good plans kind of formulate uh, in the pub over a few beers and was kind of like, you know, listen, what, what are you guys up to? I know you're leaving. You know, what are your plans? And we kind of laid it out. Uh, and, uh, you know, he said, look, come back to me the next day. We'll talk through this in more detail. And, you know, fortunately, Steve's also, he, he's an investor as well in, in startups and businesses. And he kind of, yeah, he took a punt with us and, and said, look, I think you guys have got something here. You know, I wouldn't just say uh, being a friend, you know, I'm quite critical. Uh, I, I think you, you really do have something that, that, that's, that's got a bit of legs that, that is a little bit different. So uh, we just went, went down that process. You know, I'm, I'm kind of condensing this, but yeah, a long, a long process then of, of sort of getting into the weeds of business and, and strategy and marketing and, and, and everything and everything from, uh, you know, even just uh, trademarking businesses and getting going off the, off the offset and then starting the whole sampling and process and design process from ourselves and kind of just meeting the right people at the right time and, and, and getting into the through, you know, getting our foot into the door. And I would say, you know, it, you know, it, it, it's fucking hard. It's difficult, you know, but I think our background did help, you know, in certain aspects, for, you know, in terms of, you know, helped us uh, get in front of the right people, you know, being credible, being, you know, um, you know, getting on with people and, and managing to kind of, you know, we're like social chameleons. Most special forces guys you'll find are fucking social chameleons. You can drop us in at most kind of um, areas, you know, be it posh black tie dinners and, you know, we can, we can kind of hold our own in, in most areas of conversation. But, you know, for us, I think, I think it did help massively and that credibility and people believing in what, you know, what we had in this vision. And fuck from there, you know, we went round the world twice, met everyone once, you know, we're in China, we're looking at samples, it just wasn't right, the quality wasn't there, you know, back to the drawing board and, and this is all eating away at time as well. And, and unfortunately, we met a British a designer, uh, Jeff Griffin, who kind of very kindly kind of set us on the right path and took us out to Italy, uh, where we currently have all of our th- uh, all of our sort of main items um, produced and sampled and made out there. Brilliant. Now, for the people listening, then, so tell me, you know, what what sets the uh, the the jackets apart from from other regular ones they're going to find in the high street? Yeah, I think for us, it was kind of utilizing our experience. So we design develop and test all of our own clothing and i think people have kind of uh, looked at this uh you know it's always different i mean it's always hard i don't know how people view the brand from the outside looking in you know you kind of have high expectation high expectations of your brand and and and, and kind of this messaging and branding and, and kind of where we wanted to be we wanted to be different clearly you know we wanted to you know we wanted to be functionable fashion clearly you know that was our main driving force but you know we kind of wanted you know the sf guys were all I like the fucking cowboys of the military, aren't we? We, you know, everybody likes to look fucking cool, you know, and and that was a big part of it for us. It was kind of like I don't like the outdoor, like the stuff out there is kind of bland. It all looks the fucking same. It's all bright colours, and that's not us. That's not who we were, you know. We, we so we kind of wanted to put our own spin on the aesthetical side of it, but the more importantly, the functional side of it, utilizing our experience and input. You know, for us, we're, we're now we're absolutely in the right place in terms of Italy and their skill set and what they could do. So it was, we were kind of limited to our imagination really uh, and you know going through this sampling process it, it, it was time consuming but we felt like it was the right thing to do you know what we didn't want to do is just go to china or anywhere else and just pick a 
a, a, a design that's currently out there, stick our through dark logo over it, sort of thumbs up around and high fives around the office and off we go. Let's sell as many of these as we can, you know, and get the best margin. And, uh, and then if they fail, they fail. And for us, it was all about, you know, bringing across our special forces ethos, you know, integrity, humility, all this sort of stuff that kind of runs deeply, the veins run deeply through, through dark. And we always go back to that strategy of who are we, you know, what do we want to do and, and doing the right thing in terms of the clothing and, and how we, uh, talk to the customer and everything else, that experience and the jackets, you know, for us, it was a, a case of just putting our own spin on it, really, and designing what, what we wanted to design fit for purpose and tested by us. Yeah, it was like it, it was like our background. We came from a tier one SF unit. We wanted to reflect that in business and, and, and have a tier one, you know, SF business as such so that, you know, all the things that we did or how we did stuff back in, in our special forces units, we wanted to, to bring that to the business world. And it was about going back to something Staz said, it was about, you know, it had to look good and it had to look different. Like the, the garments had to reflect our combined 45 years of special forces experience. They couldn't just be, you know, to launch something that looked exactly the same as everything else that was in, in the outdoor market you know, bright colors, like all the jackets look the same. It just doesn't reflect our background. And it goes back to that customer experience of the customer buying the jacket and being able to put that 45 years of combined experience on and wear it. And I think the story is a big, you know, a big part of that as well. I think a lot of brands out there today, they, they, you know, they're making stories or they're struggling for stories and backgrounds. And everybody that we've spoken to are like, you know, this is unique. You know, it is different. Nobody from our background has done this before from the special forces and kind of moved into this area. So it was kind of, you know, where do we want to sit? You know, you, you know, look at the look at the graphs of, in terms of competitors and everything else. And I think it, you know, we wanted to we wanted to be different, you know, and, and dare to be different uh, and, and get stuck into that, you know. So I think it's, you know trying to forge our own path if you will and we've always done that whether it's from our, our you know our background within special forces or now moving into the civilian world you know and i think it's you know at first it's a little bit weird for people to try and understand from our background you know there's been a few naysayers uh, as there always fucking is you know there's naysayers whatever you do in this world and i kind of don't pay much attention to that um you know but i think it's um you know for us it just felt right it felt true and and you know at the end of the day you know um we do have this experience and this unique background so let's let's lean on that and, let, and let's put it into you know we're passionate about this and passionate about the clothing and you know uh, and we just thought we could push this into a, into a different area of of expertise in clothing i think that's why people you know we've got a great following and a strong customer base that people have returning customer base as well that that kind of once they get it and they feel you know they feel the quality of the, of the garments as well from italy uh you know and they kind of believe in that sort of through dark um uh, ethos and everything else that goes with it they understand that they buy the product and they buy into the brand and it is different and they can't and, you know and, it, and that's kind of where we want it to be Brilliant. Well, I know you do expeditions as well, but I want to focus on, on, on one specific person. So you talk about continually testing your equipment. So Nims, uh, who actually I was, I was uh, introduced to via someone else, another, another gentleman from here that I had on, on the show. Um, tell me about Nims and where he is wearing your gear. Well, I mean, I don't want to, you know, Nims is Nims. He's uh, an incredible character, a very close personal friend of ours. You know, I served with him within the SBS as well at the same time. And he was kind of transitioning out of the SBS at the same time as myself as well. And I've got too many funny stories uh, and, you know, everything else that goes with Nims. We could spend a, a couple of hours just talking about Nims and, and our relationship and how that. But 
but specifically how the relationship sort of linked together business-wise. You know, like I said, we were transitioning out. Nims was transitioning out at the same time. And, you know, he had some, some, some at the time, crazy ideas. You know, we, of course, 100% backed him, believed in him, and we're pushing him in front of all of our network, our investors, everybody else to try and get this exposure. And, you know, climbing big mountains is expensive. So at this time, you know, we said, look, we, we want to support you. We want to help you as much as possible. You know, let's, let's try and use our reach, our network to, to A, fund you know, uh, uh, Project Possible, you know, and for those that don't know, Project Possible was to climb, you know, was, was Nims's, um, you know, idea to climb all the 14, 8,000 meter peaks um, in seven months, you know, the previous record being eight years. So, you know, just shaving a little bit of time off there. games. <laughs> but I think, yeah, for us, it was kind of a weekend directly support him through clothing, you know, and, and testing and, and developing kit and equipment. So, you know, we went, you know, we went straight in uh, at the top and, and started designing a, a fully bespoke made to measure um, uh, down summit suit, you know, the summit suits that the guys wear, um, you know, just to, 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 to obviously summit these, these big mountains. Um, the original idea for the summit suit actually came from another guy, uh, Harry Buddha Magar, who's, um, uh, served in, in, in the Gurkhas, uh, in the British uh, military and was a double above the knee amputee. And Harry came to us through friends and said, look, you know, himself, you know, an accomplished mountaineer, you know, and, and, you know, um, he was going for some pretty audacious, uh, records as well in terms of being the first double above the knee amputee to climb Everest. You know, that was stalled at the time that we were going through a process with him uh, due to the Nepalese government. Um, anyway, we started, you know, he came to us and approached and said, look, there's no uh, companies out here that I'm reaching out to that are getting back that want to help me out in terms of bespoke clothing, summit suits, you know, uh, considering, you know, his um, his issues with his, you know, with his prosthetic legs and et cetera. Uh, so he had a lot of things to think about in terms of bespoke clothing. But, you know, we took him on and we said, look, you know, we, we drove halfway across the country, met him, you know, got all the measurements, the sizes, got on great with Harry and he kind of struck a chord with everything that we were about and through dark and, and don't, you know, this, you know, I'll strap my endeavor through adversity. You know, we always set out with that goal in mind to help people, you know, and, and, and to kind of people that were aligned with, with our beliefs as well. And, and, and Harry absolutely sort of stood out and, and ticked all those boxes. So we, we went off to Italy and, and made Harry a bespoke summit suit, you know, which, you know, um, which he was super grateful for, you know, the first one clearly wasn't right. Um, he climbed in it. It was, it worked. It was fit for the purpose, but moving back from that, we had quite a lot of input from Harry, which was great. Uh, we then made a, a secondary suit and then off the back of that, Nims came in and Jay as well. So Jay had already summited Everest, um, uh, once so Jay was going for his second successful summit and, and and guiding and you know we decided to make Jay a summit suit as well you know as, um, as part of the brand and and using Jay's wealth of experience and Nims's experience to kind of feedback into this specific suit as well uh, and then yeah and all the other sort of clothing elements as well that, that, that jump off the back of that but you know it's, it's just weird Nims you know his personal profile now has clearly blown up since his successful um, completion of a project possible you know, um, but it was uh, it was certainly difficult at the start to try and get everything aligned for Nims, and and uh, he had a, a huge kind of uh, pushback in in his community, and people were laughing laughing in Nims's face, you know, saying well, you, you're crazy, this is madness, what are you doing? And you know, 
you know, for us as personal friends, um, you know, I, I couldn't be more happier for NIMS and everything that is achieved. I mean, that's, that's an absolute paradigm shift in itself in terms of physical, you know, human uh, physical potential in terms of uh, high altitude climbing, which is incredible, absolutely incredible. Yeah, and, and and again, just correct me if I'm wrong. He's also the person that goes rescues the climbers when they get in trouble. Yeah, so Nims, you know, uh, I mean, th- this is, uh, you know, I think his first rescue was uh, was on his um, Everest sort of um, uh, descent. So he'd climbed Everest. He was making his way back down, and you know, came across a climber that was kind of uh, left, if you will. Uh, I mean, that's the kind of it, it's the unwritten rule, isn't it? Really, you know, if you if you can't manage yourself above a certain area, then you know, unfortunately, you know, it, it puts too many other people in, in danger and risk the whole team trying to rescue people. But Nims kind of. Being from our background, special forces decided to try and, you know, uh, drag this, you know, the, the lady down, which he successfully did to the highest point where they could get a helo extraction, you know, uh, which is which is incredible. Almost killed himself, you know, in, in the process as well. But, you know, got flown down and kind of at the time was still serving within the S- within the SBS. So kind of had to sort of. Um, uh, move backwards into the shadows if you will and kind of not take any praise for that um and then yeah on his uh, recent trip with, with project possible again you know uh, I, i'm not sure which um, one of the you know he was up i think yeah, I can't remember which one it was. Uh, I wouldn't want to say just in case I got it wrong. We'll probably get it wrong, James. <laughs> it was a big, a big mountain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, it came across you know another guy. He, he successfully summited, came down, and heard about this team that were in trouble, and you know um, very quickly um, sorted out his own um, his own rescue. Uh, including helicopters and a lot of planning and prep and again putting him himself in, in danger again and his team and you know I'll let Nims kind of spin that himself you know yeah. I don't want to take any, any of his glory there you know but he's it was absolutely incredible um, and then yeah. I think people then realised because he'd left the military now and you know his profile was growing and growing and, and this was all live for people to see and, and, and Nims is you know he has his own unique style as well, personally, you know, and professionally. So, you know, I think for people to come out and say, fuck, you know, this is, again, he's doing things completely different, you know, and, and um, a lot of respect and kudos, you know, to Nims for what for what is achieved. I mean, I doff my cap, you know, to the man, um, you know. His, his success, you know, he's, he's out climbing Aconcagua now and his, his, his success rate for that, I think he, he had 23 climbers, he got 22 to the summer. Um, so, it's fair to say that if you're climbing with NIMS, you have more chance of success than, you know, climbing with the majority of the other companies. And I think a lot of this comes from his background as well within special forces. You know, I think um, he wasn't he wasn't super experienced in the mountains. You know, he's quite new to high altitude climbing. Obviously, he took to it quite well. You know, there's a common myth there that people think, well, he's Nepalese. Clearly, he can climb. But he was actually born and raised at sea level, um, you know, in a Nepalese uh, village. So, you know, clearly there must be some, um, you know, anatomical sort of uh, advantages. I think it's been proven. Who knows? But let's not take, let's not try and take away anything from, from what the man's achieved there. You know, it's absolutely incredible. And I think one of the main reasons he doesn't climb, you know, he also gets a little bit of stick from other people as well that, I don't know, people just clutch at straws, don't they? Just trying to, just trying to brighten, make their own candle brighter by putting other people's out, you know, which I, which I hate. But yeah, I think people saying, you know, why are you climbing with oxygen and, and all this kind of good stuff. But I think, you know, in Nims's own words, he, he absolutely wouldn't have been able to rescue, you know, the people that he has rescued off the, off the mountain if he wasn't using or wearing or, you know, carrying oxygen, um, supplemented oxygen, because, you know, this is then handed over to the, to the, to the patient while Nims, you know, cracks on with the, with the rescue. Yeah, no, it's incredible. I, I, like I said, I've I've been connected with him. I'd still love to get him 
him on the show. So, um, yeah. he sounds like an, an amazing human being. And like you said, every time someone's doing something great, people like to pull them down because they don't want to rise up and do something great too. They want to pull these people down to their level. It's life, it's life change. But I think what, what was pertinent for us in particular and through dark in particular was it was a year to date that we launched and we had within two day, two day, 24 hours of each other, we had NIMS stood on the, uh, on the highest point in the world on Everest in our summit suit. And he took that world, that, that, that now world, world renowned famous picture of the queue and then literally 24 hours, Jay was following and was also stood on the top of Everest wearing our bespoke summit suit. And for us as a startup company, that was kind of a, a moment where we, because we'd been so busy and ingrained and, 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 and concentrated on through that, it was a moment for to sort of stand back and reflect and go, you know, fuck, we, we've, we've actually come quite far here in 12 months, you know, 12 months from, from nothing, from having, you know, not even a sample to now having two bespoke summit suits on the top of Everest, you know, with one with being, you know, Nims, you know, wearing it and, and flying the flag and Jay as well. It was, you know, it's quite incredible for us really. And, you know, we, that's, I think that's, again, leading back to what Jay was saying about our background and leaning heavily on planning and prepping, you know, in terms of business. I think there's a lot of transferable skills from, from, you know, from us into, into business. And I think that's generally what we do. We just kind of, you know, uh, we just turn our, you know, turn our hand to most things. It's the whole, you know, a jack of all, you know, master of none. I think that's kind of one of our specialities, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that just, uh, I'm glad that we told the Denim story because it highlights again, the quality of your gear and so many of the, the jackets that you're going to find in the high street, can, you know, those companies can't say, yeah, our, our gear went up Everest, you know, so f know, obviously yeah. they're going to be a little bit more money than, you know, top man. <laughs> but, but You know, people, you know, we, we get a lot of that as well and people that, and it's not generally people's fault. I don't blame people. You know, you only know what you know, but we always say, you know, the bitterness of, of, of poor quality remains long after, you know, the low price is forgotten. And what that means for us is when we set out, we, we, we did absolutely did not want to make cheap, cheerful, throwaway clothing part of our you know how can we compete with big brands in terms of sustainability for us it was all about making clothing that lasts you know sustainable clothing you know um that, that, that lasts that people buy a jacket and it will absolutely will last and you know and, it, and when it does if and when it does kind of fail at any point through absolute extreme wear and tear we'll repair that jacket for people as well you know and, and that's how we how we can compete and and grow you know growing fat and grow stronger and all this kind of business is kind of where we wanted to put our flag in and just say, look, you know, I'd rather sell a hundred, you know, a hundred jackets at higher, I say a hundred jackets at a thousand pound than a thousand jackets at a hundred pound. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. for us, it's all about quality, all about quality and function above everything else, you know, and this is what people are getting, you know, getting behind the brand for. They see us Te like we everything from uh, material selection to trim selection you know to design development and test and you know a lot of people are like when's this jacket out when is it dropping when's it landing and, and the, the simple answer is when it's ready you know because you know we're not forced you know by um you know fashion seasons to drop certain amounts of new range of clothing and at this time you know clearly we're driven by seasonal sort of weather but you know but that being said if the jacket's not ready it's not ready you know and and you know i think that's been quite a a positive for us i think looking you know looking back we're not just throwing out cheap clothing uh, and just kind of making a, a quick book out of people and going yeah thank you very much that's not absolutely not what we're about yeah now with you having this concept getting together with with other men that you you know you'd work with and 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 were already friends how much do you attribute to that to um 
a, a positive mental health during that transition out of the military? Yeah, massively. I think, you know, all our reasons bar Louis, you know, Louis left because his, his hand was forced because of injury. Like all our kind of reasons for getting out were, were, were pretty similar. So, you know, I think, you know, I think massively going into the through dark as a brand has helped us mentally because, Focus. yeah, I mean, we've gone from working in a tier one world to working in a tier one world. There's no change. We never went from working in a tier one world into going, you know, into a, a nine to five working in, I don't know, in an office doing retail or whatever it is. It's like we've gone from working with a, with, with with similar people in, in both uh, both job descriptions. Uh, so that's kind of that's made it all quite simple in, in, in the transition. Yeah, I think in terms of like, you know, the mental health side of things, you know, I think what is good now, you know, that, that it's not it's it's not taboo anymore, you know, for men to, to to kind of highlight that they're having issues. And as far as I can see, or as far as I'm aware, this affects everybody. This affects military guys, it affects uh, first responders, it affects uh, people uh, that work in super high pressure environments within the city, you know, traders, all these people are, are also uh, highlighted of, of having problems. And I think the issue doesn't lie with what we used to do or what we've experienced, you know, I, uh, well, the experience is the part of that. But I think it's not so much, let's not put the, you know, the label on this, you know, PTSD now, it's, it's out there. And, and, and thankfully so as well, there's a lot of research and development and people moving forward, maps and everybody else and all these people looking at different ways of, 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 of kind of countering this now. And now that people are open to the suggestion, you know, there's other alternatives and methods to sort of treat and diagnose and, and sorry, diagnose and treat people. So, you know, for me, I think it's um, it, the mental aspect of leaving. It, it, it's again, it, it's the fear of the unknown, isn't it? Of leaving that comfort blanket of, 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 you know, everything that you know you're good at. And I guess for me personally, one of my biggest problems was, you know, I, I put a lot of, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. I put a lot of my, um, uh, identity, who I was, and I'd attached that to my old profession, and I'd gone, you know, I'm stars on, I'm, I'm in the SBS, that's who I am, that's me, that's me. So when I leave, do I lose my identity? Am I gonna, am I, am I just stars now? Is nobody gonna respect me? And you know, and, and fucking nine times out of ten, nobody gives a fuck anyway. You know? <laughs> Mate, you speak to people outside. You ask, you ask Caroline who works over at, uh, over in Asda. You know, she at the the what the SB who? You know what I mean? So it kind of, I think you, the quicker you can wrap your head around that and and understand that you know people don't necessarily know uh you know about you or what you've done and, and i think just don't you know, like we said going back to one of our original points it absolutely does help shape you as a person and everything else in between but i think you know just don't let it define you as an individual and, and understand and move on and, and and just be fucking you know find find your happiness find you know find what what kind of um you know i think i think men i think blokes you know men and I'm not saying this that women don't either, but I think what men absolutely need is they need a purpose. They need a structure uh, and something to aim towards uh, and be that, you know, mountaineering or a goal. We're quite goal driven sort of beasts. I think, you know, men, we're kind of insecure, you know, and if, we're, if we don't have something to shout about or what we're, what we're doing, then for some reason, we just seem to fucking pleasantly cave in. I don't know. Yeah. Just, just, just to add on that. Um, yeah, the, the, the whole transition piece, it was like, uh, for me, I'd gone from working in, you know, in the team, in the squadron, I'd gone from being surrounded by, you know, 40 plus people who were all, you know, alpha male, all, you know, T1 operators, 
signed out and my transition lasted six weeks. I literally signed, signed off and six weeks later I was sat in my flat in, in London just staring at the walls thinking, what the fuck have I done? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's a big contrast from going from that to, to kind of just going, <clears throat> fuck, and, you know, constantly speaking daily with Stars and Louis, but at the time, Frudoc was still, it was still an idea in his, or a in thought. Infancy, yeah. yeah, and it was like, yeah. bloody hell, you know, we've committed, you know, we've, we've committed a lot here to it and we've took this massive chance and don't get me wrong. There were some nights where, I, you know, I was up, I couldn't sleep and, and all that stuff and the worry and it goes back to what Stas said, Stas was saying. It was in my head, it was like, right, stop all this nonsense. It's like, right, where do you want your life to go? What do you want to do? Right. I want to climb more mountains. I want to do this. I want to work with people that I want to work with. I want to, you know, help grow this or, or be part of growing this, this brand into what it is. It's a tier one, you know, clothing brand. And, uh, it was going back to that and just understanding that and knowing that internally knowing that myself. Yeah. Do, it was yeah. like, yeah. right. Well, it doesn't matter if I'm, I'm sat in this flat staring at these four walls. It's like, this is the start of it. What and, do I need to do to, yeah, yeah, to get like, to that point? It was exactly the same as my military career. It was like, you know, I probably, I thought the same when I left and joined the paras, it was like, fuck, what am I doing? But then, you know, after 14 years, I was leaving the SAS sergeant and it's like, you know, I hope and I'm, I'm pretty sure we can guarantee that in 14 years we can look back at this and, and think something similar. And I think for us, James, as well, that we're, 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 you know, we were leaving of our own accord here. You know, we've made that conscious decision to leave, you know, the SBS and SAS respectively. But I think I looked at it in this respect. I was like, look, this is my decision. I'm leaving. Right. And, you know. If it, if it all goes tits up, you know, I, I say all goes tits up, like if the business and thing doesn't work out, you know, I'm not too proud to turn back. I didn't burn any bridges back there. Turn back to work and say, hey, listen, you know, can I rejoin? And what I always thought of it in this respect that um, my worst case is somebody's best case. Those All those guys joining selection, running through selection process right now. All they want to do is, is get by. So all they want to do is be in the SES or the SBS. They couldn't. They can't think of anything else other than that. It's, it consumes you when when you're in, on selection. And I was like, "Fuck! I'm not too proud to turn around and go, hey guys, can I can I come join the party again? You know what I mean? I, I left too early, you know. Yes. Uh, so that for me was a big thing. It, so my worst case was people's best case, and I was never too proud to do that. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, yes. Yeah. Same. Like you know, if, if all went wrong and and the business failed and I couldn't get work, it was. You know, there was always a plan B of, of just going back into the team. Brilliant. Well, I mean, and I love getting that perspective because I think one thing with the police and fire side, when, like, over here, as you see, a lot of the military uh, men and women have actually realized that they can now apply, you know, what they've done to, to business. Like Jocko Willink and some of these people have made a huge success taking special operations and, and applying it. But for some reason, police and fire, specifically in EMS, they don't see it the same way. And, and that's kind of what, what I, you know, think as well is, all right, you've, you've spent 10, 15, 20 years as a fireman, as a policeman, whatever it was. Now, like, you know, as you just underlined, it doesn't define you. That's not who you are. You're Steve Smith, you know, and, and there's all those facets to it. So take what you did as a career. You, the, the tones went off and you didn't know what the fuck you're going to go to. Was it a plane in a tree? Was it a cat down a sewer? Was it someone hanging off a cliff? We had to mitigate all those. So take those skills and figure out what else would make you happy applying all that knowledge in another area of this giant rock that's spinning through the universe yeah oh, so totally and, and that yeah. and, and, and that that whole process you know 
whether you're at EMS, whether you're fire, whether you're military, that whole process of going into those stressful scenarios gives you more growth and wisdom than sat in an office typing on a on a keyboard. Yes, you will pick up knowledge and skill sat in an office typing on a keyboard, but the kind of growth, wisdom, and, and outlook that you gain from, example, going to war or going to battle, personally for me, is far greater. Absolutely. All right. Well, I got one very quick question because I know we're sh- we're short on time, and then and I want to make sure that we underline where everyone can find through dark. But with the violence that we're seeing in the UK, obviously there's you know there's there's an array of of weapons being over used over there. Um, you know, Dave, our mutual friend, is on the front line. Just just from your perspective, being British and being you know tier one, what is your your view on the solutions to some of the violence that we're seeing over there at the moment? That's a very, very yeah. difficult question to answer. And I think if anybody had the answer to that, it would it would already be solved. It's kind I, th- of- I think personally for me, I, I, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult question because it all, probably all comes down to how much money we can throw at it, basically. Uh, I think for me personally, I'd like to, you know, I think, you know, throw some more money at it. I think give more responsibility for, give more responsibility to police, whether it's like more police to carry, for example, tasers or, you know, a different look on. I think you could look at different parts of crime, couldn't you as well? I mean, what are we trying to do here? Specifically, you know, um, violence against other people, uh, set aside on a larger scale. Let's talk, you know, maybe uh, improvised uh, or or run down areas. You know, this, this is the same whether it's the UK or the US or whatever, you know, everybody's got, you know, their ghettos or whatever, whatever you want to call them, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of um, harder areas. Um, and I think, what do we do? You know, do you throw more money into that, into housing, into benefits? Do you, you know, the drug problem's always there as well. Do people, how do you combat that? Because, you know, that is a problem within itself, like, you know, left of art from using it and then right of art from the people that are supplying it. So then you have your own wars on both ends, on the left of arc and the right of arc and, and everyone in between. And, you know, at the end of the day, there's like history teaches us a lot, doesn't it? You know, let's keep looking back at history. And uh, there's there's always bad people out there. There will always be bad people willing to do you know bad things to good people. And, you know, as for as long as, 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 as we keep moving forward, I think that's going to happen. All we can do is keep highlighting and helping each other and. Uh, and kind of looking into it. There isn't an answer to that question, James, unfortunately, because, you know, there's people with far bigger brains than me and Jay combined, probably, you know, that are already looking into this and looking for solutions. And, you know, I think what is evident at the minute for the UK in, in particular is, you know, it's been highlighted in the news. It's this sort of knife crime and everything like this. There's fear. And, but to be honest, I think a lot of it's media, media driven, media focused as well. Um, you know, it's kind of, uh, proportionally, you know, looking at things as well and, uh, and looking at it sub- subjectively and objectively, there's, there's all sorts of different avenues you could run down here and, uh, and look at things um, with yeah, different I think, opinions. I think, I think the UK has always been under attack from some sort of terrorist organisation, whether it was, you know, the, the IRA back in 80s, 90s, 70s, or, you know, now it's kind of more the Muslim extremist attack. Um, personally, I think, you know, the the police and the first responders and the military are doing a, doing a great job at, at, at dealing with that. You know, it's very difficult to stop a guy who's salitate knives to his hand and is running around a busy area in London stabbing people. Yeah. It's like, you know, I think the police are doing an awesome job at trying to contain it. I think the security services are. And I think, you know, I think, you know, yeah, you could throw more money at it. You, could, you know, it'd be nice to see, you know, more money thrown at training, more money thrown at facilities. 
up in that kind of, you know, the numbers in the police force and, and the first responders and, you know, up in their wages and all that kind of stuff. But like Staz, Staz has already mentioned, there's, there's people sat there already thinking about this stuff and there's a reason that it's not happened and it's probably due to finance or money going into other stuff. But I think there's also the other option as well with, um, with how people kind of perceive what's happening in terms of the general public. And I think what we have usually, you know, historically been quite good at the Brits is, is having a stiff upper lip and, and just going, we won't let this kind of, change you know our outlook or how we go about our, our daily business you know the london bridges are recent yeah. attacks there and, and you know the next day it's not it doesn't stop people from going out it will never stop people from carrying on and, and doing you know uh, and helping each other moving forward i think you know the same happened it brings people closer together if anything else you know like look at you know looking historically again at the world wars you know it just it, it created a cohesion of, of people you know the same mindset of you know look you can't you know yes you can you can attack and you can do bits and pieces but you won't defend feet the masses or you know who we are or what we stand for as a people yeah no it made me very very proud watching the uh, response to 7-7 you know and like like yeah. you said everyone was like fuck you and <laughs> went back to work yeah. got on the buses got on the tubes yeah yeah, fuck, yeah. yeah brilliant yeah. If you stop doing that that you know they're, they're kind of won haven't they you know yeah, yeah. well that's exactly that's, that's what they want but yeah and then it's interesting because because you i think you're right there's definitely fear-mongering way more here i mean our, our sensationalism in the journalist side is 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 nauseating but then i've had i've had like the gentleman that spearhand spearheaded the decriminalization of drugs in Portugal and the success they had there. I've had a Norwegian prison guard and they do the prisons completely different there. And I, and I agree with you on, on the systemic side when we've been doing it a certain way for a hundred years and it's clearly not working in, you know, those areas, maybe we should throw money at that as well and say, okay, maybe we're doing this wrong. Maybe Switzerland or Portugal or Norway. There's a reason why they're so successful and we should start using some of their ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. Brilliant. All right. Well, I've got, I've got to let you go, but let's uh, make sure everyone knows where they can find you guys on social media and reach out to you and then where they can find Through Dark. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for your, for your time, James and everybody else. I think, yeah, hit us up on, uh, on uh, throughdark.com um, for the website. And then it's just the usual handle social media wise. Everything's just Through Dark, Through Dark official. Um, yeah. Just, just check us out. We're, we're on uh, mainly Instagram, uh, but we, we are on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. Brilliant. And then that's T-H-R-U-D-A-R-K. That's correct. correct. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. Sorry for the confusion at the beginning of the day. Um, but I really, really appreciate you being so generous and, and, and your perspective is definitely very unique. And uh, I thank you for, for taking the time to reach out to the audience. Cheers, awesome, James. Thank you for having us on.